The Obergon Chapter 1 Shira 1508 hours, the 16th of October, 2047, Bent Nose Peak Oh God, the blood, the blood! Like bright red liquid permaplast, it oozed from Tork's chest and puddled on his chamber floor, congealing with his last bright, twisted smile. Shira moved her head from side to side against the pillows to shake the image. After all he'd been through, to end up like that, the waste! Rage brought her half-awake, over Talk's death, at having been locked into its unfolding. She thrashed about more vigorously now, denying not so much the image as her intensity of feeling. Stupid, getting het up over something that had happened light years away before Earth began. But she'd watched talk so long, no, more, experienced what he'd felt, as though she'd been right there in his head. And heart. God. She squeezed up her eyes. Serve her right for sneaking into Grandfather's mind, eavesdropping on those alien visions Weird, unexplained bursts of sigh-images beamed in from the distant Pleiades. They must be important, for Grandfather had actually bade her stay and share them. Shira opened her eyes. To her left, fake Afternoon sunlight shafted down through dormer windows. The disgusting opulence and the expense, just to foster the illusion that this great mansion in which she lay was still perched high up on Bent Nose Peak in the Adirondacks, not buried in a permaplastic blister miles below its former site and all for a handful of people, while millions crowded subsisting in holes and domes around the globe. Its owner, P. Tar Ellison V, newly elected chairman of the World Council, had just sneaked up space-side to trade grandfather for arms. Hypocrite! pretending to cooperate with Grandfather to avert a second nuclear holocaust, and all the while using him for anti in a global crapshoot. How could Susan Cleary love such a man? 
she glanced at the bedside chronister. A baroque marble clock with gilded hands circling a Roman numbered dial. Three fifteen. No use trying to contact Grandfather. This last transmission over, he'd be asleep and would remain that way for hours. She pictured his face, craggy, gaunt, long jaw softened with silky silver beard, and felt a stab of longing. Grandfather? Nothing. Not an echo of a whisper. Shira sat up. Better go downstairs. If McAllister was hopping back to Estralita tomorrow morning for the latest strips of Grandfather's visions of the Synergizer, the ones she had just secretly shared, she'd hitch a ride. She swung her feet to the floor, almost toppled to the carpet with a sudden movement. Her head! What was with her head? The room spinning, Shearer lay back and closed her eyes. In the quiet, the old clock ticked and whirred. Programmed to the nanosecond, the artificial sun set, and day deepened into twilight. A lamp clicked on. The bedchamber filled with a warm, mellow glow that cast no shadow on Shearer's sleeping face. Suddenly, cutting through her dreamless state, the hesicaster's voice. Shearer, Shearer, listen, Hengst has just... Shearer snapped awake. Grandfather? She felt no nearness, no sense of his presence. She called on him silently several times more, then shouted out aloud, Grandfather! The carpet and drapes caught the cry and smothered it. The windows were dark. Fake stars twinkled in a fake night sky. An incandescent crystal lamp with creamy tasseled shade lit the nightstand. One fifteen. Ten whole hours since she'd resolved to go downstairs. Shira ran to the door. McAllister! Oh, where was he? The hall ran right and left, recessed doors on either hand. McAllister! A muffled bump, a glass tinkle, and a door opened behind her. McAllister! In dark blue night suit, his hair tousled. His eyes looked sleepy, but then they mostly did. Steady! He caught her by the shoulders. She leaned against him for a moment, feeling his strength, then pulled away. Hengst has the silo. Christ!
he rubbed his forehead. Behind them, Suzanne's door opened. What is it? Has Peter, we think, hanged has the silo? Suzanne went pale. Estrelita? Oh, God! Peter's... Her face sharpened. How did you hear? She glanced towards the stair. The beamer? McAllister shrugged. Then how? The woman turned on Shearer, eyes narrowing. Shearer ignored her. McAllister, let's go. Okay, he pointed down. Kitchen, but we need to talk. He marched her down, Suzanne at their heels. In the 18th century colonial kitchen, Suzanne filled a copper kettle and clapped it onto the stove. Shearer hung back by the door. McAllister, take me to Grandfather. McAllister led her over to the dining booth made of old church pews and sat her down. Now, with deliberate speed, he went around and slid in opposite. You say the Hesycaster spoke your name, then Hengsts, then faded. Um, mm. Shearer shot a warning look towards Suzanne. Too late. Suzanne whipped around, kettle in hand. I'm neither deaf nor stupid. You're telepathic. And you've been linked with the Hesycaster all along. That's what you've been up to these past two days, watching his visions. Shearer stayed quiet. What a bore to sit up watching the reruns with us, Suzanne said bitterly. Shearer bit her lip. The woman was dying to call Shearer a hypocrite. But how could she, when she herself had known of her husband's sellout all along? McAllister spoke up. Shearer, why would the Hesycaster cut out like that? It's obvious. They tranked him. Figures? Well, at least he's safe. Hengst needs him. Safe? Shearer leaned forward. That stuff stops his thigh waves cold. Tranked him? But old wouldn't... Oh, my God! Peter's only card. Wait, he'll call us soon. Card? Shearer leapt up. Grandfather, a card? I'm neither deaf nor stupid, she mimicked. He won't call. He can't. Because he went up to STI to sell out Grandfather. And now Hengst has him right here. She thrust out her hand, palm up, then balled it into a hard, tight fist. Shearer, sit down, McAllister said. She sat down. Not because of him. She could just see her grandfather shaking his head at her outburst. 
Shira, Shira, Shira. Sorry, she said. But she was still furious. She couldn't help it. She sat, staring down at the tabletop, recalling when she'd last been in there hours since. She remembered reaching out her mind, hearing the space shuttle's racket, seeing Ellison's contorted face, the cockpit controls. He's under stress. He's going up and accelerating. She banged the tabletop, rattling the mugs, spilling the tea. We can't just sit here. Quiet. I'm thinking, McAllister murmured. Shira made to stand again, but this time McAllister's hand shot out and gripped her wrist. There's more at stake than two men. What about all the poor bastards out there, hmm? Shearer met his eyes angrily, then looked down. The way things were going, of all the millions left on earth, only one small remnant would survive, hand-picked by Hengst. What now? She pulled away, rubbing her wrist. We use our heads. McAllister leaned back. With all due respect, Suzanne, your hubby's trip to STI was stupid. He's no match for Hengst. Alistair, Peter's our elected leader. And as Shearer said, Hengst has him and Estradita, and who stopped him? Shearer frowned. Grandfather would never let himself be taken. Oh, yes, he would, and has. That's why you're here. Shearer shook her head. Never. No? It's a gambit, don't you see? He and whoever on Frinus are playing a round of cosmic chuka. And we're the claws. He was doubtless giving you his next move just now when Hengst yanked his plug. What I'm trying to figure is, he rubbed his early morning stubble, with data coming through, why would Hengst want to put him on ice? Doesn't make sense unless, unless what? He shook his head. Shira glared at him across the table. Tell me, or I'll read you anyway. McAllister grinned. Either Ord's synergizer is out again, and Hengst wants things on hold until it's fixed, or... Or... Don't make me say it, Shira. I'll say it for you. Hengst has his own synergizer now, and he's shipping Grandfather Spaceside to carry on up there, right? McAllister nodded slowly. That's my number one choice. Why? 
he fancies himself a second Noah. And now he has somewhere to go with your grandpa to steer him. If he's Noah, where's his ark? Suzanne cut in. Frenis is in the Pleiades. To get there, you need a star drive. He knows that, Suzanne. You mean, he has it? I wouldn't be surprised. Then Hengst does hold all the cards, Suzanne said bleakly. It's over. Oh, maybe not. There are a couple of wild ones loose still. Suzanne's head came up. The star charts? McAllister nodded. In your husband's unlink files. He pushed back his chair. You said a couple of cards, Shira said. Oh, Grandfather. The star charts are in his head. If Grandpa won't cooperate, Hengst will need the strips, which I'm going to pull right now. McAllister glanced to the wall clock. Hengst will be sending for them. And for you. And you, Suzanne. The General's daughter didn't like that. I don't know anything, Alistair. But you're a great bargaining chip. And, Sven, we'd better move. Where? I'll find a place. Suzanne stood. I'll get Sven. Oh, God, I'm going to have to tell him. McAllister nodded. Make it quick and grab some gear. Keep it light. Shearer walked alongside McAllister towards the access lock, the leggings of her foam miler suit whispering together. The other two trod behind, anonymous, behind dark mirrored visors. What had Suzanne told her son? And what was his take on it? She longed to read him, but Grandfather would be sure to find her out. McAllister palmed the lock, and the alloy slab popped open. Beyond a tunnel, numbered ports flush with the shiny wall. One, two, three. Ports to the President's three launch silos. Slots in the permaplast wide enough to admit one body at a time. They slipped through and waited while the slab slid shut again. Shira closed her eyes, sent out her thought, feeling for sign of activity in the silo beyond. All clear, McAllister. She looked up into his visor, saw her own face staring back at her, bulbous, distorted. Thanks. McAllister led them past port one, halted before number two. He palmed the lock, slipped through the narrow gap, and, pointing them on to number three, closed it after him. Sven slid down the wall 
to sit on his pack, hunched, head bent, as though still half asleep. Hard to believe he was only a year or so younger than Shira. As far as she could gather, he lived alone with Suzanne under bent nose, never seeking company in the community shelter. Why? Beside her, Suzanne leaned against the permaplast, making no effort to communicate. Shira pictured McAllister behind the door, going through his moves, a strategy that he'd carefully explained on their way through the bright, silent tunnels. No use just taking off in his hopper, he'd said. They'd be trapped and caught like apples falling from a tree. So? They'd give haste just what he expected. An hysterical granddaughter rushing to Grandad in McAllister's hopper, number two, and flying into the net. McAllister was setting the number two controls to do just that, tapping in voice responses in case the craft was challenged en route. By the time they were rumbled, they would be gone in hopper number three, out into the general traffic swarm. Ingenious. She sent out her thought. McAllister, nearly done. Still all clear out there? Far as I can tell. Where are you up to? Just heading for the pad. Stand by. Tricky to set two craft to launch simultaneously without alerting traffic control. Almost through? Uh-huh. I'm boarding now. Stand by. Shira glanced at the other two, making no move to share her exchange with them. The seconds dragged in that bright, white, silent tunnel. After about a minute, Suzanne pulled off the wall, went to stand in front of number three port. Then she shifted back, squatted beside Sven, put her arm around his shoulder. Sven didn't acknowledge the gesture, but stayed still like a lump of God knows what. Suzanne straightened again, and, with a slight turn of the visor towards Shearer, went back to stand before Port 3, eyeing it expectantly. The port door slid open, and McAllister beckoned them in. Sven scraped back upright against the wall, hitched his pack and squeezed through. Shearer and Suzanne followed, emerging into the bottom of a giant well that towered into the heights. In the centre, the hopper-weighted ramped down, jets already venting. McAllister ushered them up and in under the low hatchway. One minute to patch themselves in and adjust their seats for launch, while McAllister's hands went rapidly over the controls.
even through her helmet, Shira heard the whine of the vertical booster swell into a roar. Thirty seconds. A warning signal shrilled. The shaft was open. The way was clear. Twenty seconds. Shira's webbing was secure. She was aware of Suzanne and Sven on either side of her, still fiddling with their harnesses. Ten seconds. Nine. Eight. A blue light came on. She glanced to McAllister intent on the controls. Three. Two. One. Shira pictured the twin craft slowly ascending their shafts, up and out into the pre-dawn air. She felt a slight tilt as their hopper, breaking clear, angled away from its neighbour and imaged the two craft like twin needles shooting off in different directions, one towards the silo in New Mexico, and the other theirs, to heaven knows where. But only the Estralita hopper would track, in an event, for McAllister had been shuttling to and from that place at all hours of the day and night on errands for Ellison. McAllister had somehow scrambled their real flight vector, by the time the trackers realised, they'd be long gone, he said. A mile up and accelerating. Shira swallowed hard, felt her ears pop. Suddenly they slowed, thrusting Shira out against her harness. As she settled back, she let out a deep sigh. They were in the clear. They unhooked their webbing and raised their visors. Suzanne looked sick and puffy in the cabin's blue light. They haven't picked us up, then. McAllister stayed bent over the controls. Finally, he straightened up in satisfaction. Hengst will give em hell, poor sods. Where are we headed? Shira asked. Well, McAllister said thoughtfully, there's this guy.